Seeking then the Lord's help, we turn to this passage, Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, and looking from verse 31 down to chapter 19 and verse 14. And we are still looking now at the land of Jesus. And we come this morning to Jericho. Now you'll remember much of the history of Jericho. It is part of the history of the Old Testament. It is well known. It was a Canaanite city. And when Israel went over the Jordan, then they were ordered to march around the walls of Jericho. The walls collapsed down under the power of God. Rahab, of course, was spared. But they were also commanded not to take any of the spoil of that city. It was forbidden them. It was to be devoted to the Lord. But, of course, Achan could not resist. And so there was that curse upon Jericho that fell and fell upon Achan. There was later in the history of the Old Testament the rebuilding of Jericho. We don't hear a lot about it, but a man called Hiel, in defiance of the curse of God upon that city, rebuilt it. And we are told that it cost him his firstborn as he set to the foundation and his youngest son as he finished the gates of the city. There's also a city later on in the time of the prophets, the waters of which had been bitter, but they were made sweet by the prophet Elisha. So that's Jericho, something of a, a fabled city, but actually one that is mentioned but little in the New Testament. And these verses before us here are in fact the only record in the Gospels of Jesus having ever visited Jericho. It is duplicated in a measure, at least this portion in Matthew and Mark as well. Now, let's remind ourselves where we have got to with the Lord Jesus Christ in his travels and in his ministry. He is now leaving Galilee. He departed from there. It was a formal departure. It was a determined departure. It was a foreordained particular leaving of Galilee, passing through Samaria down into Judea because he was setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, as he passed through Samaria, it was not like the previous time when he must needs go through Samaria and there was the woman by the well and the city came out and heard for themselves and believed. This instance in that city of Samaria where they traveled to, the people refused because his face was as he would go to Jerusalem. And they wanted something for themselves. They didn't agree with the Jewish center of worship being in Jerusalem. And so they refused Jesus at this point. And James and John, the sons of thunder, suggested calling down fire and brimstone from heaven. Christ rebuked them. But still his face was set for Jerusalem. And so as he's traveling from the north, from Galilee, through down then into Samaria, through Samaria, southwards down, heading for Jerusalem. This is his mission now. His face is very much crosswards. But as he goes, he is passing through Jericho. And Jesus here is really relocating the base of his ministry to the south of the country for these last few months of his ministry. 
And for the next few months, he will live around the fringes of Judea and of Jerusalem. Mostly he was settled east of the Jordan River, opposite Jerusalem, in a place called Perea. And is known as his Perean ministry. Now, Perea is not a word that is actually used in our New Testaments. But that was the name of that area of land. It was still Jewish territory. It was, if you, if you look at your Old Testament maps and so on, you will see that Perea is largely the area occupied by the tribe of Gilead as they entered into the Promised Land. And it was still there for Jewish territory. It was ruled over at this point by one of the Herod's headed Antipas. It was also the place that more devout Jews would use as a staging post if they were traveling from the northern Jewish territory and settlement of Galilee down to Judea and Jerusalem for the feasts perhaps. Rather than go through Samaria, they would cross over into Perea, cross the Jordan, travel south through Perea, cross the Jordan again westwards, climb through the hills up to Jerusalem. That was the common route by which you would get into Jerusalem from the north. And that way you didn't have to access Gentile territory or Samaritan territory. You stayed in Jewish land the whole time. But Jesus hasn't taken that route. Though it was the common route for the Jews. He went from Galilee to get to Jerusalem. He again went through Samaria. But he was rejected. Still heading south, Jesus is pouring out teaching as he goes. And much of what we know of the teaching, the parables and the ministry of Christ comes from this period as he is heading south and at his time in the Perean ministry. But the focus has shifted in his ministry. You remember how he pointed that out? From his identity as the Son of God to his work as the Son of Man suffering Dying and rising again on the third day. And so look again at verse 31 of our chapter here. Luke eighteen thirty-one. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And so Jesus is repeatedly making clear that soon he will be killed. And rise again. And still the disciples are struggling to grasp the full meaning of what he is saying to them. They cannot comprehend. They cannot begin to think of Jesus dying. And so they do not know what these words mean. Anyway, they continue traveling. And as they travel, they approach the ancient city of Jericho. And at this point, we meet two of the best known and best loved characters of the New Testament Gospels. Two of the most famous converts to Christ, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. Now, two more different men you could hardly meet. Total opposite ends of the spectrum of society. One a beggar, one a publican or tax collector. And yet both residents of Jericho. And both transformed in their meeting with Jesus. Let's look first of all then at the blind man who gets new sight. The blind man gets new sight. And here we're at the last section of chapter 18. Blind Bartimaeus is one of those beloved and adored characters of the New Testament. 
Partly because his circumstances as a beggar draw out our natural pity and sympathy, this poor man and his experience. But his persistence with Jesus, crying out, Thou Son of David, have mercy upon me. There's something admirable in the way this man behaves and his approach to Christ. It's steadfastness, it's persistence, it is solid and we naturally find ourselves admiring this blind man. Let's look then at this man who was healed on the outskirts of Jericho. Now, a few things to tidy up in our understanding. Some of you may already be aware of some confusion because both Matthew and Mark and Luke record the healings of blind men around Jericho. Matthew and Mark both say this miracle happened as Jesus was leaving Jericho. In Luke's account here, he is placing it on the way in to Jericho. On the other hand, Mark and Luke both only mention one person. But Matthew is this time distinct in mentioning two blind men who are healed at this point. So there seem to be some uh, discrepancies between the gospel accounts. But we know that they are all able and capable of being reconciled because this is the word of God. The Bible is inerrant. So these, all these things are true. Maybe in our understanding we can't fill in all the blanks. It is possible that there were simply two distinct incidents. One with one blind man on the way in. One with two blind men on the way out. And the fact that Mark mentions only one on the way out may simply have been he only knew the name of one of the men. Bartimaeus maybe was more prominent. But these things are capable of being reconciled. One of the possible ways to reconcile it suggested by well-known commentator Matthew Poole and it appealed, I must be honest. He suggests that it was all one incident. That it began as Jesus was entering into the city of Jericho. That there Bartimaeus, first of all, heard that Jesus was coming. Perhaps even began to cry out, but the people silenced him. And Jesus carried on entering into the city and met with Zacchaeus. But on the way out of the city, the beggar had relocated and continued there his cry, anticipating that Jesus would pass that way. And there joins with another unnamed beggar. Now, it is not something we can ever know for sure how it was and how we can reconcile these things. But it certainly allows for a reconciliation. We can see at least there are ways to reconcile the accounts. The scriptures are not in conflict. They are not contradicting each other at any point. And one of the advantages I quite like of Matthew Poole's suggestion is that it lays emphasis on the very thing that is already emphasized in all three of the gospel accounts, which is namely the persistence of Bartimaeus. Thou son of David, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That was the cry. Now the people rebuke him, but he carries on crying out all the more. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And as well as 
that persistence that there is in this prayer, which is something to be noted in passing most clearly. The other commentator, the other Matthew, Matthew Henry, brings out a comment on both men. He points out how suitable for men who share the same suffering to also share the same supplication. And that both men are crying out, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Two blind men, perhaps one guided and instructed by the other, that salvation and hope was coming soon. Perhaps as in our account here in Luke, there was a commotion of Jesus as entering into Jericho. There's a crowd gathering. There's a bit of noise and commotion. This is where Bartimaeus has his patch. And something is happening. He can hear what is going on, but is a bit confused by it all. What is happening? Who is this that is drawing such attention? Jesus of Nazareth, they tell him. At that point, perhaps Bartimaeus then determines that he is going to meet with Jesus of Nazareth. He knows who he is. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's heard about him before, but he's never visited Jericho before. Maybe he'd wondered why he had gone to so many other places. He'd been all across Judea, all across Galilee. He'd been up in Decapolis. He'd been over in Tyre and Sidon. Why had he never come to Jericho? Was the old curse of the city still upon it? But no. He reasoned well. When Jesus came into the city, he's going to have to get out again. He knows where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. So he heads round to the southern gate of the city, perhaps. And relocate. Now often those who are begging have their own patch. Think of the man who sat at the gate beautiful of the temple. That was his known place. Everyone knew the man who sat at that gate. That was where he begged. But at the other gate maybe is a place that the other blind man usually begs. One on the way in, one on the way out. And Bartimaeus explains the scheme to him. Jesus of Nazareth has come into the city. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to pass this way. Let's be ready to cry out to him. And they hear the noise and they cry out. And then they're heard. And Jesus commands them to be brought to him. But still more is asked than even this persistence. Verse 41 might seem a strange question to us. Jesus says, what wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? Surely it was obvious what a blind man or two blind men were after. And of course it was obvious. It was perfectly obvious. Everyone knew they were blind. Jesus knew they were blind. It was obvious. But the disease of sin is just every bit as obvious to the Saviour. He sees it as clearly as you or I could tell a man was blind. By the way he feels his way along or is guided. By the look in his eyes. And yet Jesus prefers still for us to tell him our need. He knows it. It's obvious to him. We are blinded by sin. But he prefers to hear from our tongue what he already knows in his own mind. And so the final part of the prayer is added. Lord, that I may receive my sight. And so the sinner lays hold upon his Saviour. And so the sinner lays hold upon Christ. We might, as it were, arrest Christ as he passes by with cries and with pleas. 
And Jesus hears the voice of the needy. He hears the cries of the sinner. And he draws such souls to himself. He commands you to be brought. He sends, as it were, as angels. He sends as providences to draw you closer to himself. And when then you have the attention of your Lord, then you may pour out your heart to him. Hold nothing back. What is it at the root of your need? What is your misery? What is your complaint? Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus says, receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. Bartimaeus says, maybe I was confused by this. He was just a blind man crying out. What faith had he exercised? He'd hardly noticed it. Where was my faith? I'm a needy beggar. And that's true. But Jesus saw the faith. Everyone else could see the blindness. But Jesus saw the faith. You brought your needs to me. You placed your hopes upon me. You believed that I was able to save. You believed that I was willing to save. Because you believed who I was. You believed I was the son of David. You believed I was the chosen Messiah of God. Thou son of David have mercy upon me. That was the faith that the Savior saw in the heart of this blind man. Faith that went out after himself. Faith that needed Christ. And so now there are two more men. Blind men. Formerly blind men. Who have joined in with the crowd following Jesus. And they give glory to God for his mercy. Now a few just comments before we move on to our next point. Persistence. You might have others who oppose you. You might have circumstances that are against you. You might have a blindness. You might have an infirmity. You might have a weakness. You might have others telling you not to waste your time. Not to disturb the master. You might have Jesus not seeming to hear you at the first because you've cried out before. But perhaps, friend, the blessing for you is just on the other side of the city of Jericho. Just one more day away. Just keep crying. Go and cry again. It may be that that time will be the time when he hears. Keep crying out to the Lord. And I'm speaking here both to the lost and to the found, both to the Christian and to the non-Christian. You should be persistent in your seeking of Christ. You should not become despondent. You should not rest in a place where there is no communion between your soul and his. No communication. And it might be hard, you say, it's hard. How do I know if he is hearing me? And particularly so, maybe without the, the familiar surroundings of the church. How can I tell I'm not hearing as well in my in my isolation, as I seem to be hearing in the corporate gathering, maybe so, but keep at it. Be persistent. And even bring others with you. You never know what it may achieve when Bartimaeus went to get his friend. We are all in need, friends. We are all sharing in the confusion of our day. But the Lord already knows it and is waiting for us to tell him. He already knows what is in our hearts. He already knows uh, what is waiting for us. And he himself is waiting for us to tell him 
what we want him to do for us. Keep looking to Jesus. Place your whole hope in him. Trust in him. Persist. And when Jesus answers, carry on. Follow him just as these blind men followed him out of Jericho. And glorify him. Glorify God for Jesus in your life. And so the blind man gets new sight. But then secondly, the greedy man gets a changed heart. Here we turn to Zacchaeus at the opening section of chapter 19. Still in Jericho. The short man Zacchaeus who climbed a tree famously. Now like the blind beggars, Zacchaeus had also heard the commotion that was caused by the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth and all his followers. And he wanted to see for himself. But he was too short. And so in anticipation of the route that Jesus would take, Zacchaeus ran ahead, found a tree and climbed it. Knowing that Jesus would have to pass that way, knowing that he would be guaranteed a bird's eye view and nobody else taller would get in the way. Now Zacchaeus is quite an interesting case. He is not someone in desperate need. He is not blind or deaf. He is not demon-possessed, nor is he sick of any palsy. This is the account of a miracle of the soul, not a miracle of the body. This is the account of a new heart for an old sinner. It's a plain and wonderful conversion story. But it's only told in Luke. Well, as Bartimaeus is told in Matthew and Mark as well, Zacchaeus and all that happened in Jericho, it is only told in Luke. Notice how he wanted to see Jesus, this man. He didn't want to meet him. He just wanted to see him. He wanted to observe Jesus from the safety and distance of the tree. He wanted to make his own judgment about Jesus. He wanted to determine for himself and his own mind objectively what it was all about. Now, he himself was the chief tax collector, not just any tax collector. That's what publicans means in the Bible. Publicans a word for they're working, as it were, for the public purse of the Roman Empire. These Jews were despised by most of the Jews of the day. But they worked for the Roman Empire. And this man would already have been well paid, not just a publican, but a chief publican, the chief tax collector. But it was also an easy matter for anyone with half an ounce of brain, as it were, to be able to fiddle the figures and keep more for themselves than was their due and siphon off from the people, giving Rome its due share, but taking more from the people than was fit and proper. And so this man was in dire need of salvation. Outwardly, you would never place himself, Zacchaeus, and the blind beggar on the same level, not for a moment. Not in the same boat. They were just miles apart socially. But this short man had a dead heart. He wanted no Jesus for himself. He didn't climb this tree to look for Jesus for himself. Only curiosity sent him up the tree. But when Jesus stopped at the bottom of his tree and looked up and spoke directly to him, Yet, somehow, he receives the master with joy. Verse 6. Something happened to his heart when Jesus spoke with him. 
something quite unexpected, something quite wonderful. In truth, what happened was this, though he would not have understood it as such. But his heart was made alive by the power of Jesus' word brought into his heart by the Spirit. Excuse me, by the Spirit of Christ. He was regenerated by the word of Christ speaking with him. His whole heart was changed. As surely as Jesus had given new sight to Bartimaeus, he gave a new heart to Zacchaeus. And he found that he now wanted to do whatever would please Jesus. And he wanted to do whatever Jesus asked. And he so scurried down that tree far quicker than he got up it. Because it was what Jesus asked him to do. And he took him to his home joyfully because it's what Jesus asked him to do. He obeyed the voice of Jesus and he did it all gladly with great joy. That's a sign of a new heart. It's not a cold, dead, formal obedience that is here. This is hearty, glad obedience. It's obedience that doesn't feel like having to obey with a drudgery in any sense. It doesn't feel like any trouble at all when your heart is alive for Jesus. Obedience is now simply doing what the new heart wants to do. That is, please the master. Follow Jesus. Please Jesus. Listen to Jesus. It's what your heart wants to do as a new soul in Jesus Christ. And along with this glad obedience soon come the fruits of that obedience and the fruit of grace in his soul. There hasn't even been an express command from Jesus what to do with his immense wealth. But he knows what he wants to do. He starts spontaneously to offer to return. Anything is taken amiss. To give away half of his good to feed the poor. And return fourfold anything else to anyone he's stolen from. It's a great mark of grace when notorious sins in our lives are gladly given up for the sake of Jesus. Sins that were our hearts, sins that were our idols. Money was this man's idol. But now the motivation for these sins, the desire is gone because the heart is changed. And when that motivation is cut off, the action of that sin becomes an abhorrence and we detest it and we want rid of it. And so, Jesus says, salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus that day. But notice in verse 10, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, there's a contrast that straddles the division of the chapter and Ought to be noticed. And the chapter division is unfortunate here because it breaks up these two, the only two events recorded in Jericho in the history of Christ's ministry. And it deserves to be noticed by us this contrast between the blind man and the publican. Bartimaeus and his friend, they were crying out, they were being shushed, they were being told to stop, they were being silenced, but they cried out all the more, Have mercy upon us, thou son of David. They were pleading with Jesus, seeking for Jesus, and Jesus heard them and delivered them. Zacchaeus wasn't doing any of that. Zacchaeus was hiding. Zacchaeus wanted not to be noticed. Zacchaeus wasn't seeking Christ. At the most, he was an interested member of the audience. And so Jesus became the seeker for him. 
Isn't that interesting? And Jesus found him. And Jesus saved him. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a blessed saviour. It's probably easier than ever when you join in a service like this by YouTube to be simply a member of the audience rather than a seeker of Christ. Ah, but friends, let me tell you about my saviour in this. He may seek for you. Indeed, that is what he has come to do as a saviour. Indeed, by his word and gospel, we believe he is seeking this very moment for sinners to save. Seeking and saving sinners is why he has come. It's why the gospel goes out. Because Christ by it is seeking souls. Notice then, seeking the sinner is only the means to the end. The purpose or the end of his seeking is salvation. Your salvation. Oh, lost sinner today. The purpose of the seeking of Christ is to save the sinner from their sins. Hasn't Jericho become a very happy place? This place destroyed by God. Only Rahab spared and her family. Annihilated. This place cursed with Achan's sin. This place destroyed. The walls collapsing down upon themselves. This place rebuilt at the cost of Hiles. Two sons. What a cost it was. This place had bitter water for much of its history. Yet this place is now the first As Jesus is now making his march, as it were, towards Jerusalem, it is the first place to embrace him with no opposition. On his way through, he'd gone to Samaria. Samaria had seemed so promising. He had nothing but success there before, but they rejected him. Jericho seemed to be the least likely place, a notorious place. And they embraced him. All strata of society from the beggars to the tax collectors. All the people thronged out of the city. They all knew who he was now. They all knew where he was going. And they followed this rabbi. Such a happy place. And so does Jesus himself who utters a word of caution. That is our third point. The king will still be rejected. The king will still be rejected. And we come then to this parable at the close of our section here. Verse 11 onwards of chapter 19. Now, I'm not going to begin in a closing point to cover all of a parable at all. You can read it again for yourselves. But I want us to take notice of the introduction to the parable. As they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Jesus has the crowd at his feet, you would say. They're eating out of his hand, you might say. Everything is joy, everything is happiness and delight. Salvation has come to Jericho. But he was going to Jerusalem. 
And all these people are about to go and follow him up to Jerusalem. And they're assuming on two things happening when he gets there. They're assuming that Jesus will begin an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And they're assuming that the people of Jerusalem will embrace him just as surely as the people of Jericho just have. And Jesus brings back into focus, once again, his renewed emphasis on why he is going to Jerusalem. He is going to die. He is going to suffer and die and be rejected. And so, in this parable, the nobleman must go into a far country. He's leaving them. He's leaving his servants. He's leaving the people. And then he will return when he has received a kingdom. And so Jesus must go away into heaven after the resurrection, after his death and resurrection and ascension, until the kingdom has fully come. And he calls his servants, the disciples, to come and administer the kingdom in his absence and gives them all tasks to perform. But the people hate him. And they say, we will not have this man to reign over over us. It's not the servants saying that, who later call to account. It is the people, the citizens. And this is what is coming. They hate the nobleman. They hate his rule. They hate his laws. They will not serve under. And so unlike Zacchaeus, who obeyed joyfully, they were going to reject. This was not going to be a case that in Jerusalem, the experience of Jericho would be replicated only better and more. It was not going to be a city that would all accept him. Everyone would be converted. A blissful golden age of the messianic kingdom would be ushered in. No, in Jerusalem they hated him. In Jerusalem they would kill him. And he would go away. But in the end of the parable, when the master returned, he would settle the accounts of his servants. Yes, but then he would inflict an awful punishment on his enemies. Verse 27. Those enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. They would not that he should reign over them. He comes and destroys them. What is Jesus doing here? He is tempering the excitement and the expectations. He is saying, do not expect, though you now, Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus and others perhaps are following me, you're excited by me. Do not expect that all the world will follow. This is, of course, the understandable excitement of the new convert. And it's wonderful. Oh, I see. Once I was blind, but now I see. I see Christ. I see Jesus. Everyone else will see him now. I'll I'll tell them all. You try and tell them when they don't see. Or else you're as a case. Jesus found me. I wasn't even looking for him. And he found me. And he met with me. And he's changed me. And I love him. And I do it joyfully. I serve him. I'll give away all my goods. Whatever he wants. My old idols. I'll throw them out. Jesus knows that that's not going to be the case across the world that we live in. It's not going to be the case as the world is waiting now, but everyone wants Jesus. 
A world where everyone will love his law and his rule. Whatever else in this world might do, you must keep on and carry on. Remember verse 11. This is why Jesus gave them this parable. So that when others will reject him, even if some of his own servants would seem to be in the parable, minister of the gospel allegedly, or turn out to be wicked servants, if they seem to fail in their duties, if nobody else seems to follow him at all, what will you do? You must carry on. All the world might not welcome the Saviour with a new heart of joy, but you still do, and you should carry on. And so the Saviour passes through Jericho. His only recorded trip in this city. But what a memorable trip it was. And then what? Then he sets his face for Jerusalem. And that's where he goes next. May he bless his word. Let us pray.